Good morning, everybody. As our kids are dismissed, um, I, I love Family Commitment Sundays. It's such an awesome picture of watching families within our family grow, um, which gives us a picture of, of the gospel. It gives us a picture of who we are supposed to be as a body of believers, that um, we have new people born of God into our family. And that's not just here at Mars Hill, but it's, it's the global church. It's the body of Christ that we see those born into this family. And it's such an awesome picture that we get to see and that we get to participate in as a body. Um, those of you that are visiting with us, welcome. Um, we have lots of family members and friends here with Baby Dedication. Uh, my name is Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Mars Hill. And you've joined us as we're working through the letter of 1 John, the, this uh, letter that John has written. Now, what we are seeing so far as we work through this letter is that it's almost set up as the so what to the gospel of John. Um, I don't know how many of you that are part of our family here at Mars Hill, that are covenant members here at Mars Hill, I don't know how many of you were with us as we went through the gospel of John, but you may remember that as we went through the gospel of John, that it had a very specific purpose, didn't it? We found that in John 20, 31. John says this of his gospel, that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's why the Gospel of John was written, that we have these accounts of the life of Jesus, that we have all of these stories to show us that Jesus was much more than a man, that he was indeed who he claimed to be, that he was the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, that he is Messiah, right? And then when we get to 1 John, we see its purpose in 1 John 5, 13. It says this, John's still speaking about this new book, but I write these things to who? You who believe. So these are those who already believe, right? In the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so when we see the gospel, the gospel of John is written so that we might have a transformed life, so that we might believe in who Jesus is, and so that we might enter into life, that we might have life in his name. And then 1 John is the now those of you who believe. I want to write this so that you may know that you have eternal life, so that you are assured in that, so that you are secure in it, so that you're comforted in this. And so the way that John has done this is it's been a very, very interesting way. It's like it's almost a courtroom scene where he's trying to get us to find ourselves guilty of being redeemed. He's saying that if you're redeemed, it'll look like this. You'll love, you'll have these characteristics. These are the things that you will look like if you are born of God. And so he's laying out this case. If you love, if you've responded to the Father's love, if you love the Father, all of these pieces are there. And so what he's saying is that if you are born of God, then you will have identifying features that look like your Father. If you're born of God, you'll look like him. If you're born of God, you'll have birthmarks that connect you to him. Uh, part of my responsibilities as a teacher is that I'm also a coach um, because that's what you do at small private schools is you do everything, right? Um, and so I'm the golf coach. 
Um, used to be volleyball coach too, but now I've whittled down to one. Um, and I take my kids with me a lot of times to golf. One, because Carter's on the team, and then Cambry just likes to go. Riding the golf cart is apparently an exhilarating experience. And so she comes with me, and we walked in this past Tuesday to Magnolia Grove. So we go up the stairs, and I'm going to check my team in because we have a match. And I walk in, and as I'm walking up to the counter... Like, I haven't said hey to this woman. I've never met this woman in my entire life. I've never seen her at the counter when we checked in. And she said, y'all all look just alike. Those kids don't look nothing like their mama, do they? And I was like, well, my wife has blonde hair and blue eyes, and so there's that one at least. Um, but, but she said, that must have been all that they got from you. Those kids look just like you. And I, I'd always heard that about Carter, but Cambria, I still definitely don't see it. But apparently, there's some type of identifying feature about my kids that connect them to me as their father. Maybe it's the way that they look. Maybe it's the way that they walk. Maybe it's the way they talk. Maybe it's the way they stand. There is some type of identifying feature that says, these are the son, this is the son and daughter. Hope that wasn't prophetic. We're not going to have one soon, are we? This is the son and daughter of Tommy. That he is their father. And so there's something that connects, and that's what John is saying. John's saying that if you are born of God, if you are his, that there's going to be something about your life that's going to look like your dad. That when people see you, that they're going to say, oh, I know that kid, because I know his dad. I, I, I know their father. That there's something there that's special. Now, now remember that last week, we saw from John that this characteristic that was laid out over and over to us, and John's done this at different points in his letter, that this primary characteristic that John keeps circling back to is love, that we'll be a people of love, that we'll respond to God's love and love the Father, and we'll respond to God's love, and we'll love each other. And we see that we were allowed, last week we saw that we're actually allowed to draw in and be part of this love of God. You know, I, I don't um, know exactly how Neil put everything together last week, but last week in Mobile, I really pulled out this aspect that, that we get to be an expression of God's love. And it was a very imperfect illustration, but the way that I worded it is that we are to be God's flowers to each other. That we're to literally be the expression of God's love to each other. How do you know that God's love you? God loves you? It's supposed to be because he gave you me. And how do I know that he loves me? Because he gave me you. That we encourage each other. That we walk this life with each other. That we come together in a very real sense as the sons and the daughters of God to love and support each other. Live out being his kids. And we do this together. That we're to be a gift for each other. But what John doesn't want to happen, what John doesn't want to happen is that we begin to take all of these pieces that he said, this is evidence that you're born of God, and then we make that our source of salvation. And so that's why chapter 5 is written. That's why this first part of chapter 5 is written, so that we may know the true source of our salvation and so that we may know that we are born of God in Christ and in Christ alone. And so today we're going to see a couple of things. We're going to see that we're born of God through Christ in our passage. We're going to see that we are transformed when we're born of God. So we're not the same one anymore. We're going to see that we're victorious when we're born of God. And we're going to see that being born of God is confirmed by 
the Spirit. So let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer, and we'll dive into our passage today. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray that this morning you speak to our hearts. Lord, not that I have anything to say, but your word does. And so, Lord, I pray that it convicts where we need convicting, that it encourages where we need encouraging. Lord, I pray that your spirit opens our eyes and our ears to the truth of the gospel this morning. And we pray this in the name of your son, Christ. Amen. So chapter 5, verse 1 starts with this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so, like I said, we've seen John, like, building this case, right? If your life looks this way, that you are born of God. And the reason why John's been doing this is because he wants us to be secure. He wants us to be assured in the gospel. And so he's been building this case. But when we get to chapter 5, he starts this off a little bit differently. He wants us to know the true source of our salvation. And it says that anyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And so what John wants to make sure of is that we get this order correct. It's not that we are born of God because we love. It's instead we love because we're already born of God. Does that make sense? Today we're going to see other characteristics that we obey not to be born of God, but instead we obey because we are born of God, right? It's that whole cause and effect thing. And so what John is doing is laying out this argument that we must be certain that we know that we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that we can bring. It's not an act of the will. It's not that we can muster up enough inside of ourselves to be good enough to get to God, to be saved, to, to be born of God. It's not about us. It's about him. And that's why this starts this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And John emphasizes over and over and over this transformation, this evidence of the transformation. But here he wants to be very sure that he gives you the source of the transformation. And the source of this new life is Jesus. And this truth is all over the New Testament. It's all over it that we must be born again, that we must be a new person. We must be made anew. We must be born anew. That, that there's something going on. But, but I'm going to reference John's own gospel. The very same John that's writing this letter recorded this in John 3, 3 out of the lips of Jesus. It says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now remember John 3. Who's this conversation that Jesus is having with? Does anybody remember who that person is that he's talking to? It's at night. Nicodemus, right? And he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, and he says that you must be born again. And Jesus goes through talking about the testimony and the testimony of the Spirit, testimony of men. We see those things being laid out here. And when he gets to this point, Nicodemus is like, what? I've got to be born again? How is it possible to be born again? How is it possible? I've been born once. I don't understand this. And it's in this context of being born again. It's in this context that you must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. That we see the most famous verses in all of scripture. Look at this. John chapter 3 verses 14 through 18. In context of this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus about being born again. What does it say? It says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what's happening here? I I can just see John recounting this conversation that he's heard, these conversations he's had with Jesus, these things that he's seen. And I can see him in this writing. And then a little bit later, everything's going to run so together, you can tell that he's just trying to get all these thoughts out on the paper. But we can see that he understands, because of what Jesus said, that there is a very real connection in being born again and what Jesus was sent to do. That the only way to be born again is because of Christ. And what is the key to this being born again? It's not that just Jesus came, but it's that we believe. That there's something about that. Because when we go through the Bible, we see like in, in James chapter 2, even the demons believe and shudder. So, so there's got to be something unique. There's got to be something special about this belief. That it's not just a, oh, he exists. You know, in our society, especially here in the South, everybody believes in God, right? Yeah, there's a God. Absolutely, there's a God. Um, there, are, there are people that would, would say with complete certainty that there is a God. And then you start talking about Jesus. They start getting a little bit uncomfortable, start dropping the JC bomb on them. But they get a little bit uncomfortable, but they can still get on board with that. And they can say, yeah, Jesus was real. But have you believed? Well, yeah, I believe in him. No, have you believed? And what does the Bible say about this kind of belief? What makes this unique? Well, we start seeing keys and and tips and these things in Scripture that's going to kind of mold our thought on this. And we actually saw one last week. Last week, 1 John 4, 7 through 8 said this. Beloved, let us not, I'm sorry, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, now why did I bring this up? Well, the reason why is because this word know in this passage is a very unique word. There's actually a lot of words um, in Greek that you can translate into the word knows or to know. But this one carries some weight. This one's gnosko. And what this is, is it's knowing yes, but it's not knowing because I opened a book and read it. It's not knowing because someone told me. It's not that kind of knowing. It bears the weight of knowing because you have experienced it. It bears the weight of knowing because you have seen it. It bears the weight of knowing because you have been a part of something here. It's knowing not by reading, but by a true taking in of something, by being active in something, by being part of something, that it's almost like you have been in practice of something to know. The, the way that I kind of think through this is it would be like the difference in if you went to a surgeon and, and they were fixing to, you know, operate on your nose because you have deviated septum. Not that I know anything about that. But you're about to go to the, the, to the surgeon to get that operated on. And two doctors walk in. 
One that says, I've read a book that told me how to do it. And the other one says, I've done this about 600 times. Which one am I going to (laughs) pick? Right? I can read a book. Do not give me a scalpel in your face. It's just a bad idea, right? That there's something unique, there's something special about knowing by experience. And that's what the gospel is. That's what gospel belief is. That's what gospel knowing is. Is that it's not just I have this concept of that's out there. It's not just there's something out there that I know that's there. But that I have genuinely, personally, in a real way experienced this. That it's become an action in my life. That it's become a verb in my life. That this love that's shown to me isn't just something that somebody says, hey, I love you, but I've seen it worked out. And what, what scripture is saying is that those who know God, have experienced God, have participated with God, that he has transformed their life. The result of this are these things. You can't help but to be transformed when you interact with this love. You can't help but to be transformed when you interact with this God. Now, I won't do it again this week, but last week in Mobile, like my daughter, literally, it looked like one of these like kind of meme things that you would see um, because I, I, I love music. I've always been a music person. Um, but whenever I was looking at this, I thought of back in the day, I, way back to, to 1992, and I started thinking of the DC Talk song, Love is a Verb. Anybody in here know that song? Between the age of 40 and 50, raised in youth ministry, you're welcome. Um, but, but last week I decided that for some reason that I would break out in song and I literally watched my daughter go behind the table. So I won't do that again this week. Just, you know, you can go listen if you want, but I don't recommend it. Um, but, uh, it's true, right? As interesting as that song is, as fun as that song is, as cheesy as me even thinking to say the lyrics in the middle of a sermon, it's absolutely true. That, that there's an action there, that there's, there's something there that's more than words, and that's what transforms us. He gave his son. He sacrificed freely so that we could move from life to, from death to life. He sacrificed his son so that we can be changed, so that we can be assured, so that we can know. And in that action of giving his son, we are changed forever. And we need to know that. We need to stand on that. To know God is to experience him. And to experience him is to never be the same again. Amen? That's the type of knowing John's talking about. So the first thing is that John shows us in this passage that we are born of God through Christ. The scripture says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Next, we see that we are transformed when we are born of God. So it's, it's that something fundamentally begins to change in us. We're not even the same person. We're transformed. Look at the end of verse 1 through verse 3. It says, who loves, the, who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So what, what is this saying? Well, it, it's saying that there's a connection here between love and being part of God's family and then the keeping of the commandments that all of these things are, are intertwined together. They're all married together in this passage. The, the truth of what this is communicating, though, is that we have a brand new identity in Christ. 
That, that when we're born of God, that we've entered into a new family. And this is a truth of Scripture that we need to understand. It's throughout Scripture that we looked like our father, the flesh. That we looked like the world, that we looked like sin, that we looked like our old father, but we have been born anew into the family of God. That we have been born of God, and as such, we bear a new name. As such, we have a different father to reflect. We're different. We're not the same. Our identity's changed. John understands this in his letter, and Paul understood this too. Look at Romans 8, 14 through 15. It says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in the fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. So those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now notice the language here is a little bit different. Paul is talking about this in terms of adoption. John is talking about this in terms of actually being born of God. But the message is the same. That we are no longer identified by our old family. We have a new daddy. And I love that scripture uses that verse. Father is, the word's okay, it's fine. But for me, like in my family, my, my father is, is still my daddy. Like that's the way I talk to him. That's what I say. When Carter and Cambry come up to me, people can say, Oh, is, is, is that your dad? Is that your father? But there's something about them calling me daddy. And, and that's why scripture uses this term, Abba. It's this personal thing, right? It's not this far off out there idea that we, in a real sense, become God's kids. We're, we're associated with a brand new family. We should resemble this family. Everything should change, and that's where the weight of everything that John has been saying comes into play. That's where we really begin to see the weight of last week, and we see why John's been spiraling out of control on this topic of love. It's because he gets it. And what does he get? He gets this. Understand that when God becomes our father as a result of being born in him, that we all, in a very, very real sense, become brothers and sisters. When God is in a very real sense our father, we in a very real sense become brothers and sisters. And we love each other differently. You know, I have people that I've grown up with through school um, that, that I've known for a long time. And I would tell them, they're my brother, they're my sister, because I feel like that relationship's that close. But, but some of those aren't believers, some of those are people that I'm very, very close to. And, and, and here's what we need to understand. Is that you, as the people of Mars Hill, as fellow followers of Christ, as those that are redeemed, you are closer to me in a, in, in a relationship, familiar, uh, familiar, familiar way than they are. You're my family. You're my family, and I should love you that way. You should love me that way. And that's why we see this idea that we've seen through John, that we are in a very real sense. I know it sounds arrogant, but I'm God's gift to you. You're God's gift to me. 
that, that we live this life together, that we encourage each other, that we walk with each other, that when you fall, I'm there to pick you up. I don't know about you guys. Everybody doesn't have a fantastic relationship with their sibling. But you in this room, as my brothers and sisters, we have a relationship. We have a love for each other that's been washed by the gospel. And it's different. It's real. And that's how we are to live. And that's why John has been going crazy over this topic. And every time he gets off of it, he comes back. is because he can't get enough of the idea that you and I are children of God. And as such, we're a family. And we should love each other like that. But not just any family. A gospel-transformed family. And that is who we are. And so what this means to us is that our common ground as believers isn't the same common ground that the world looks for. Our common ground, our identity, the thing that we connect over is not in race, it's not in class, it's not in language, it's not in nationality, it's not in political affiliation, it's not in your favorite college football team, though that does matter. It's in none of those things, roll tide, but it's in none of those things. It's in Christ. And that's what brings us together. And there is not a greater unifier in all of humanity than to be brought together under the love of our creator. There's not a love that's better than that. And so what that means is that though we can disagree, we will always love. What that means is that though there are things that look like they separate us, none of those things are bigger than the gospel. And we always, as believers, should find our way back to each other in the love of the gospel. And that we should love each other the way that God has loved us. And John doesn't stop there. You know, it's this truth that we see in love that he can say things like, you know, if you don't love your brother, you're not in God. Because there's a very true, real sense there. But he doesn't stop there. He says that there's going to be other evidence, other characteristics that identify us as God's children. Look at verse 2. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That's an interesting connection there. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That there's a relationship, there's a connection there. But also, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. This is an interesting little section here, isn't it? The way that the wording is. It's almost like in your mind you want it to be the opposite of that. That by this we know that we love God, that we love his children, and we obey his commandments. Right? That's the way that we want to read this. But what's happening here is that John is putting emphasis on love again. Right? It's this great thing that he keeps coming back to. He can't leave it. But then he starts connecting love to the reason why we're to be obedient to him. He starts connecting love to the reason why his commandments shouldn't be burdensome to us. He starts connecting all of this together. And it makes me think of the book of Matthew. You know, when we get to chapter 23, we see Jesus talking about the seven woes to the Pharisees. That um, he talks about their law has actually become a burden to them. That, that it's a heavy burden on their life. Before that, in Matthew 11, Jesus had said just a couple of chapters before that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And sandwiched between this is such an amazing proclamation. After he says his burden is light 
And before he starts going into, hey, this is why the law is weighing you down to the Pharisees, he says this in chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And this is what he says. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And right there is probably where they were expecting them to stop. Why? Because this was a very common answer. Like this is, this is part of the Shema, right? That you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is who we're supposed to be. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He says this. And the second is like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so why, why, like, why is this worded this way? Well, let me give you a quick little illustration, and it's not a perfect one by far, um, but it's the best that I could come up with. I've encountered people, I've met people who just don't want to get married, which is fine, because you can see scripturally that, that, that you can, like, there's room for that. Paul talks about that. But there are also people who don't want to get married because they see it as something different than it is. There are people who don't appreciate or love marriage because they see it as a burden. And, and some of these same people that I've talked to see kids as a burden. They, they see these things as a weight on their life. And why is that? How could someone see marriage and kids as burdens? Well, well here's why. Because they see the sacrifice you have to make. Is there sacrifice in marriage and raising kids? Yes. What are those sacrifices? Well, I don't know. It depends. It depends on your status in life. It depends on your job, socioeconomic uh, situations, all of these things. But all of us have something as part of a family that we sacrifice. For me, I have a 14-year-old whose foot simply will not start gr stop growing. It just it won't happen. It's like we just bought those three weeks ago. How are they tight? Well, I guess daddy won't get a new pair of shoes. You will this time. And people see that as a burden. They see it as a sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice? Sure it is. But is it a burden? No. People see that, that when you're married that you um, have to sometimes give up things to make stuff work in the home, to, to be able to, to spend time with family. Well, I used to like to do this and now I can't anymore because I work all week and I really want to see one of my families on Saturday. And people look at that and say, that's a sacrifice, that's a burden. But what those people don't understand is that my motivating factor behind it all is love. And it's not that I have to do those things, it's that I get to do those things. Those things are treasures to me. Now, I admit I'm cheating because my love language is acts of service. And so the, you guys that aren't, you, you'll never get in here and I'll never get in there. It's fine. Um, but, but I love being able to serve my family. I love being able to. There's something about me looking at a need of my family and saying, here, I can provide that for you. But, but you could do this with it instead. No, no, this is the greatest thing I can do with it. Why? Because my motivating factor behind everything I do is love. And that's what John's talking about here. He's talking about why are the commands of God not a burden to you? Because the motivating factor is love. The motivating factor behind God giving them to me is love and freedom, my freedom. The motivating factor in me obeying them is love because of my love for him. When you think about even just the Ten Commandments, every one of them connect to one of two things. Our relationship with God 
in our relationship with others. And listen to me, when we understand that these are true offenses against either our God who we love or our brothers and sisters who we love, will we readily commit them? No, we won't. We won't do this because of the motivating factor. I mean, think of Hebrews 12 too. When we find out that, that it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. How can you endure that? Well, it's, it's, it's the motivating factor behind it. It's love. It, it, we can look at John 14, 15. I can imagine these words in John's mind as he's writing this letter in 1 John. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The motivating factor is love. It's been said that when you see all of God's commandments are for our good, for his glory, and for our joy, then we'll readily obey them. When we see how wise they are, when we see them as gifts from God, from the one who created all of this, created you, that, that you'll obey them, that these things are set up to give us the most fulfilling life possible, we'll obey them. When we see that these commands are not to bind us, but to truly free us, we will obey them. We'll stop seeing them as a burden. They won't be a weight on us, but instead they'll be a relief. But it's not that we're going to obey perfectly. But instead that these commands, obedience to these commands dictates the trajectory of our life. Are we more in a place of obedience than we used to be? Those of you in this room that have been walking with the Lord for more than 10 years, putting some criteria on this, my school teacher's coming out. Um, those of you that have been walking with the Lord for more than 10 years, here's my question to you. Do you see the commands of the Lord as less of a burden today than you did when you started walking with him? And I think for every one of us, we would say, yeah, that's me. That's me. Now watch this, of all those same people, I want you to be bold enough to raise your hand on this one. For all those same people, how many of you that see the commands of the Lord as freeing and as a gift? How many of you are perfect now? Raise your hand. You don't sin anymore. Because I need to talk to you. I need to get some tips. None of us. None of us. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you're perfect but we are going through this process of sanctification and we're seeing that more and more our life is being shaped and molded in conformity with the image of our Father. And as we go through this, that we are being sanctified, that we're being changed, that we're being transformed by the power of the Spirit. John's not saying that obedience is an easy thing. Remember back in 1 John 1.8, he says, but when you do sin, but if you do sin, it's implied that we're going to, but it's not that we readily sin. It's that we readily obey. Why? Because of his love. So when we're born of God, we're transformed. Next, we see that we are victorious when we're born of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. What's our victory? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So according to John, who has overcome the world? Everyone who believes, and this is interesting wording again. I love the way John words stuff because it's so confusing and awesome at the same time. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. And what's the victory that's overcome the world? Our faith. This is interesting wording here that, that our faith, our faith in what? Our faith in ourselves? 
Uh, Our faith that we can do this. Our faith that we can win. No, he's already set this up, right? It's our faith in Christ, but not only our faith in what Christ has done, but it's also our faith in what he is going to do. Why? Because we have ultimate victory that Christ has overcome the world. We have victory in that. And John says that our faith is our victory. And why is that our victory? Think about this just a minute. So often we think about our faith as being that moment that we respond to the grace of God and submitting our life to him. Yes, that is our faith response. But here's what we need to know. Our faith is part of our every single day, all the time life. And what do we have faith in? We have faith in the, ba- in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. We have faith in the fact that Jesus is victorious. And so what does that mean for us? It means that we share in his victory. That we're overcomers too. And tell me this, how else are we to overcome the world except that we wake every single morning with faith that Christ has done it on our behalf? Does that change your perspective of your day? Yes. When you're crushed, when all of your stock is not in this physical world, does it change the way you look at it? Yes. We have faith that he has overcome the world. And this is a daily thing. And so being born of God means that we get to share in that victory. You know, Bobby this morning was was painting um, this image, and we talked yesterday, and we were talking about what, where the message was going today, and we talked about the weight of the law not holding us down and not being a burden, that it's something that frees us, that lifts us, that we overcome the world. And he said, what about some kind of image of like someone breaking free from rocks, breaking free from everything they're under, breaking free from what's weighed them down? And I was like, that's perfect. That's beautiful. And in the first service, he painted this. But that's the image of what we have here, is that when we live only for this world, when things go the wrong way, we're going to be crushed. When we're living only for ourselves, we can be overcome, but in Christ, we're the overcomers, not our situation. And that is good news. Verse 5 says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We overcome because of his victory. Think about what John already recorded back in his gospel in chapter 16. Jesus said this, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Understand that. Beloved of God, the the world, you, you will have tribulation. You will have struggles, but why can we have peace? Because he has overcome, and if we abide in him and he in us, we have overcome too. Because of what he has done, not because of what we have done. And this is a theme throughout the New Testament, and it made me think of Revelation chapter 12. Look at this, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. The book of Revelation gives us a picture of sharing in the victory of God, doesn't it? 
It gives us a picture of sharing in the victory of the Lamb. It gives us a picture of the blood of the Lamb overcoming the world. And as such, us being in that, as the children of God, we participate in that victory. And this is so important for us to get because remember John is writing so that we may know, that we can be assured we are supposed to never be left guessing our eternity. But remember, all of this, all of this reminds us that the reason John wrote this is because someday we will question these things. Am I really an overcomer? Look at what's happening around me. Look at my life. Why do I keep falling into sin? Why do these things keep happening to me? Why does all of this begin to occur? And what happens is we begin to take our mind off of Christ. We take our eyes off of Christ and we look at our situation and we see our faith begin to shift. But John's saying, no, no, no. You be secure in this. You keep your eyes on Christ and watch the other things begin to diminish. That's the picture of what's happening here. So the result of being born of God is that we're victorious overcomers of this world in Christ. And last thing this morning. Next, being born of God is confirmed by the testimony of the Spirit. All right, I'm fixing to read verses 6 through 12. Remember I told you that John's going to start spiraling out of control just a little bit? Okay, stick with me because he's going to lose you if you're not careful. So here we go, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. There's a lot going on there, right? There's a whole lot there. So we, we start off with verses 6 through 8 because we need to kind of get a handle on the basis for all of this. And so when I read this, my mind started going different ways, and I kind of put down some thoughts, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to go back and and look at some of my favorite commentators and see what they thought on this. You know what I found out? They all disagree. It's really comforting when you've got to get up and present a truth to a congregation, right? (laughs) When nobody nobody can agree what's happening. So what what did I see in this? Well, I saw some interesting things. Number one, I saw that some people said that this points to three events in Jesus' life. Water, his baptism. Blood, the cross. And the Spirit, the descending of the Spirit when he was baptized, affirming that he's God's son. Can I get on board with that? Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I I can get on board with that. Next, there are some that see this as two instances. That the water and the blood flowed from the side of Jesus while he was on the cross. And then the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost to affirm all that Jesus said, to empower the believers, right? Jesus said that I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send back a helper. Can I get on board with that one? Absolutely. Spurgeon says this, and I can get on board with it too. A priest was always ordained by sacrificial blood, cleansing water, and oil that spoke of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had these three witnesses to his priestly ministry. I can get on board with that. 
We see others say that this is a picture of the difference in the work of John the Baptist versus Jesus, that they had different baptism, and the Spirit speaks to this. I can get on board with that. One of my favorite commentators, James Montgomery Boyce, reminded me of why he's my favorite. He just said this. It's the most curious phrase in 1 John and maybe in the entire New Testament. And he just walked away from it. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. Uh, we, uh, for me, because I was studying this in context of the Gospel of John, it made me think of the story of Nicodemus. And I think that there's a real connection there. Right? Because in the story of Nicodemus, we're talking about being born again. Jesus talks about being born of water. He talks about the testimony of man, talks about the testimony of the Spirit. The Gospel of John starts with not being born of blood or water. And we see all of these pictures there, and there's something going on there. I know there is, but that's kind of more of the camp that I fall in. But no matter what, I don't want us to get bogged down in all these interpretations. And the reason why is because every single one of them is essentially saying the same thing. You may say, how is that possible? Here's what they're saying. It's speaking to the humanity of Jesus. It's speaking to the deity of Jesus. And it's speaking to the testimony of the Spirit. Do you see that in all those? Right? That, that we see the way that Jesus lived out his life. He lived out his life as, as one of us. He lived out his life as a human. His pain was very real pain. His death was death. He was in agony. He struggled. We, we see that we have a high priest that's been tempted in every way that we have, right? That we see his humanity on full display. But what do we also see? We see his deity. He lived different than us. That, that he and the Father's will was one. That he overcame death. That we see this picture of that. But what John is saying is that if you know all of these facts, if you're told all of these facts, the testimony of a man, the testimony of someone saying that to you matters, but you will not fully internalize this, understand this, let this change your heart, have a transformation happen in you without the power of the Holy Spirit revealing it to you and without the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. And we see this on display in Matthew 16, 15 through 17. Look at this and see if you don't see this image there. This is Jesus talking. Remember, who do they say that I am? And we see these answers. And then Jesus says in verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Look at what Jesus said. This is interesting. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't the testimony of man. But my Father who is in heaven, it was the testimony of the Spirit. And so what are we seeing? We're seeing this marriage of the message of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing, seeing Jesus' life lived out and understanding that this was different. This is real. There's something transformative about this. The way that Jesus was born, the way that he lived, the way that he was baptized, the way that the Holy Spirit descended, the way that he died on the cross, the way that the stone was rolled away, the way that the Holy Spirit came to the upper room in Pentecost. There was something different about all of this. This wasn't ordinary. This wasn't commonplace. There's not another explanation for this except... That he was God. And that's the work of the Spirit testifying to these truths. Do you see that? that? That's what we're seeing here. And that truth radically transforms our lives. And watch this. As the Spirit works that in our lives and our lives are transformed, what happens? This is beautiful. Our lives become a testimony to others and ourself that these things are true. 
How does it become a testimony to yourself? Don't throw away the rest of the book of John. If this is you, if this is you, if this is you, you're born of God. This is a testimony of the work of the Spirit in yourself. That you can wake up in the morning and say, I'm not the same that I used to be. Something's happened in me. And so days that I don't feel it, it's still true. One of my favorite quotes on this, and I used it last week in Mobile, is that it's good to feel the love of God. But it's noble to know that God loves you even when you don't feel it. There's something to that. There's a weight to that. And how does that come? By faith. John's confidence is very impressive. But he doesn't want that to be his confidence. He wants it to be yours. He wants it to be mine. He wants us to be assured of the work of the gospel in our life. And that we can trust what Jesus has done because of the testimony of the Spirit. John knows that we need to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. The gospel wasn't just something that transforms us once. It transforms us daily. The gospel is where our hope is. It's where our peace is. It's what, rests, what our faith rests in. It's, what's, it's what grows our faith. And John is saying, be assured of this. He is speaking of the gospel so that our faith may grow. And he's speaking of the gospel so that even those who believe may know. So what do we take home from this? What are a couple of things that we can uh, think about, talk about with our families from this? I, I think the first one is the most obvious one, is we must know that salvation is only through Jesus. Salvation is only through the person of Christ. The only way that we are saved is in Jesus. That we never get stuck on these things that John says and, says that, and say to ourselves, if I can do this good enough, then I can be saved. If I can love well, then, then I'll be saved. If I can obey enough, I'll be saved. If I can do this, if I can act out, if I can do these things, then I will be saved. No, no, no. You're going to end your life exhausted and empty. What we have to understand is that salvation is the result of what Christ has done, not what we can do. And guess what? That brings us peace, doesn't it? Because if it's based on me, the days that I feel like a Christian are all fine and dandy. But what about the ones that I wake up and I don't? See, I'm stuck then. I don't understand that there's a victory. I don't understand that I'm an overcomer those days. If I do not rest in Jesus's, if I only rest in me. Because guess what? I'm going to fail me every single time. But Jesus will not. And if he's the source of my faith, that's where, that's where I'm going to find my hope. And so the question is, have you responded to that? Have you bent your knee? Have you bowed your head in response to who Jesus is? Because if not, the Bible says today that it can be the day of your salvation. Next, we can know that all that God has done gives us security we can rest in. So have you responded? If the answer is yes, know that you can have security. You can have rest. You can have peace because you share in his victory. Because you are an overcomer. Because he is an overcome. And that's why John writes this. So that you can know. So that you can know. You've experienced God. It's changed you. Something's happened. It's not just these words on a page. Something's occurred in your life. Do you see the ripples of the gospel in your life? Do you see the result of the rustling of the wind blowing the leaves of your life? You can know when these things happen. You're not who you used to be. Be secured in that. When we love, we love well. 
When we obey, we obey in joy, but that's not what has saved us. It's the work of Christ, and he is our assurance. He is our victory, and that is our testimony. That is the testimony of the Spirit working in us, and that is the testimony we live out. Beloved of God, understand this. God loves you, and he wants you to be secure in that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that it is astoundingly convicting and astoundingly encouraging at the exact same time. Lord, that I look at these things and and I understand that I don't love perfectly, that I don't love well all the time. Lord, that, that I don't obey perfectly, that I don't obey well all the time. But Lord, I thank you that by the testimony of your spirit, that my eyes have been opened to see the gospel and what your son has done. And through proclaiming the name of your son, I have been born of you. And I thank you for the security that we find in that, that you give us a measure of faith so that we can see that, so that we can know that. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today be the day of their salvation. That your Holy Spirit knock the scales off of their eyes. That they see your Son for who he is, see you for who you are. And accept that sacrifice and the Lordship of Jesus over their lives. And for those of us in this room that know you, God, I pray that you give us all the greatest gift that we can ever have, and that's security in you. Lord, that we know that we are overcomers, not because of what we've done, but because you're an overcomer. You're the overcomer. Lord, I pray that you help us to know that we're victorious, that all of the words in your word are yes and amen. That because of the way that you've loved before, because of the sacrifice of your son, you will not allow any of your promises to go unanswered. That everything is yes and amen. And so let us be secured in our eternity, but not just our eternity future, but present here today. Lord, I pray that you help us love each other well, that you help us be the family of the people of Mars Hill, that we're brothers and sisters that are children of you, that live out a love that points to you every single day. God, I thank you again for all of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Heaven's promise Shiver